what would happen if I just sat down in front of the microphone and see what comes out? Getting discomfortable with spontaneity. A few months ago, I went to a conference called World Domination Summit in Portland, Oregon. It's difficult to describe. It's it's not it's not about dominatrixes. It's not about actually dominating the world. It's sort of a blend of people that are interested in personal betterment, in achieving big things, in adventure, in connection, entrepreneurships, startups, all that kind of stuff. So it's basically just a big meetup of people who are really positive and interesting and sometimes a bit unusual. The conference consists of various meetups and group activities and some shenanigans like playing a giant game of Capture the Flag. But the the meat of it is a series of keynote speakers. And one of my favorite speakers of the whole weekend was a woman named Kathy Heller. I didn't really know anything about Kathy going into it, but her talk was both incredibly naturalistic, like she just felt extremely authentic as she was speaking, but yet it felt like it was completely pre-written. And I I really admired her ability to speak in public like that. It it reminded me of other speakers that I really admire, like Michelle Obama or Brene Brown. You just, you can feel that they're being themselves, but at the same time, they're being extremely articulate. So after Kathy's talk, I actually completely randomly ran into her on the street. It was one of those situations where I was just walking alone, and then I noticed that her and her producer, Emma, were walking beside me. And I was like, oh, should I say something? I don't want to be a creep. And it just so happened that at a certain moment, we stopped at a stoplight right at the same time. And I just was like, hey, by the way, your talk was one of my favorite talks of the day. And Kathy was really surprised because she said that she had just winged the whole talk. Apparently, and she talks about this on her podcast, she had written a whole speech with slides and I guess she felt that it just wasn't very authentic. So at the very last minute, she was just like, you know what? I'm going to go out there and I'm just going to say whatever comes to mind and trust that it's going to be interesting. And that blew my mind because it felt like such a coherent, thought through talk. But yet it did have that quality of spontaneity. I found this really inspiring. As you may or may not have noticed, the last 14 episodes of the podcast have all been pre-written. In fact, I would consider them more essays read aloud than actual podcasts. And a lot of the feedback I've been getting from people is that they want to hear a version of the podcast that is a lot more casual and spontaneous. So today, I wondered what would happen if I just sat down in front of the microphone with nothing pre-written and see what comes out. So this is the 15th episode of the Discomfortable Podcast, and this is the first episode that I haven't pre-written. Over the last 14 episodes, you may have gotten a sense of me, but I don't think I've ever actually officially introduced myself. My name is AJ, 
and I am currently living in Montreal. And by currently, I mean I'm here for a month only because I don't have a home. I've been nomadic for the last year and a half after completing a travel program called Remote Year. So I'm literally holed up in a kind of seedy Airbnb in Montreal's The Plateau that feels a little bit like a rooming house. In fact, for some reason, right now, the entire block has no power. So I am literally in the dark right now, recording this by candlelight. My intention for the podcast in general and for my website, discomfortable.net, is to create a space to discuss issues that make me a little bit uncomfortable. Shame is one of those topics that is very uncomfortable. Most people really don't want to look at it or even admit that it exists in their life at all. Though my official shame series is over, pretty much everything I touch on is probably going to link back to shame in some way. And it's a topic that I want to investigate a lot more in interviews with people. People who are comfortable enough to discuss it, that is. If you've listened to my shame series, you'll know that a few years ago I had what I call a shame breakthrough, which basically was discovering that my life was really driven and motivated by this one emotion, shame, and that most people, myself included, don't really understand what shame is and what it does and how it controls us. It kind of became an obsession over the last few years to research everything I possibly could about shame and to learn to deal with my own personal shame in order to lead a happier, more comfortable life. The irony is that in combating shame, one of the most powerful things you can do is to get comfortable with discomfort. So when I say a more comfortable life, what I actually mean is a less comfortable life in which I am more comfortable being uncomfortable. That's why I chose the name Discomfortable. Something that's been on my mind a lot since I've been researching shame is the concept of spirituality. I have always considered myself an atheist, and I've definitely been sort of judgmental about people who seem to believe in God because to me it seems illogical or there seems no proof of it. But over and over again, as I've read about people who are very resilient to shame, one of the common themes is spirituality. I don't know what the exact statistics are of religiosity in the world today, but it seems to be majority of the world. So it seems rather presumptuous that I basically thought five billion plus people just didn't know what they were talking about. I think the truth is there's something fundamentally profound in the human experience that we call spirituality. That, that doesn't necessarily mean that there are spirits or that there is a god or gods or any truth to any specific religion. But it's clear that as humans... There is something that we experience that's awe-inspiring, that, that feels good, that feels transcendent of normal life, and that is a profound part of what it means to be a human. And I think just because there's maybe not a lot of logic to make us believe in spirits or God, 
that doesn't mean that we shouldn't partake in or seek out this common human experience of spirituality. As I mentioned in one of the shame episodes, I think spirituality at its core isn't necessarily about God. I think the notion of connecting with God is really the notion of connecting with everyone. We are inherently social animals, so connecting to other people is one of the most profound sources of positive feelings that we have. And I think that spirituality is our social instinct to connect on steroids, basically. When you believe that you are connected with God, you believe that you are connected with the creator of everything. So all that is good about everything and about humanity is encapsulated in this notion of being connected to God. And I think you can actually remove God from that equation and still feel that same ecstatic feeling. You can attain a sense of spirituality from any kind of group gathering. The bigger, the better. If, if, if everyone is focused on enjoying one specific thing, for example, church, you get a bunch of people together, singing, feeling emotions, reading, it creates a sense of wide human connection. But you can also achieve that wide human connection at a concert. Everyone's singing along to their favorite song. You, you don't know any of these people, but you all feel connected by one thing. You can also get it from sports. Everybody sitting in a stadium, watching a game, cheering for their favorite players, cheering when they score. It's that same kind of vast sense of connection to all that is good in the world, or in that one stadium, at least. So for me, I've been trying to cultivate spirituality without necessarily having to believe in anything that doesn't seem logical to me. When I go to a concert, instead of crossing my arms and sort of watching from a cynical loner perspective, I dive right in, even if I don't necessarily love that specific artist or that specific song. The more I join in with the group's enjoyment, the more I feel that sense of spiritual connection to everyone, to, to, to all of humanity in that moment, at least. This doesn't mean that if the crowd starts rioting, I'm going to riot with them. It's just letting go of this kind of detached, cynical, third-party perspective and joining in merriment in any moment with any group in order to amplify the feelings of connection that make me as a social animal feel good feelings. It's as simple as that. So when I go to a church, which is rare, I will try to sing those hymns that I don't know, or to say amen when I might not have before, to attempt to pray. You know, like, why, why not? And it really does work. It makes me happier. It makes me feel like I belong. So we can't just reject spirituality because we don't agree with it. We're actually then missing out on a fundamental part of being human. And I think there's always a way to attain that without having to compromise your beliefs and values.
one of the topics that's been on my mind a lot recently is what I've been calling micro-ideologies, though I think they are akin to what most people would call mental models. They're basically ideas or constructs or beliefs that aren't necessarily 100% provably true, but appear to improve my life if I embrace them. It's a little bit dangerous territory because it's essentially like deluding yourself in order to be happy. So every time I find a micro-ideology that seems to improve my life, I have to do some careful stress testing to see, is it blinding me from something? Is it hurting other people? Is it ultimately going to make my life worse? I'll give you an example. A couple months ago, I realized that in any given situation, I was always afraid that things were not going to work out. If you've listened to my shame essay about the fatal flaw, it's kind of similar. This, this idea that at any given moment, I might make a mistake or a situation might go sideways in which something so bad happens that I won't be able to recover from it. This is just like a, a nagging anxiety all the time in my life. Like, oh, I really need to like do a good job on this project I'm working on or it will end so badly that I won't be able to recover. Or I really need to like work hard on this relationship or it will end so badly that I won't recover. Or I, I, I need to be very careful on this camping trip or it will end so badly that I won't be able to recover. But then I realized over 38 years of being alive, no matter what horrible things have happened to me, what mistakes, what failures, what disasters, though they were unpleasant at the time, ultimately they did work out in the sense that I'm still alive and I'm actually quite happy and my life is pretty good. So even though some project or other was a complete failure and it really hurt, and even when I think about it, it's still quite painful, the truth is I learned a lot from it. I got stronger from it. I improved, and my life went on. So it seemed absurd to me to constantly be worrying that things were not going to work out when everything I've experienced in my life tells me that no matter what hardship I experience, Given enough time, it will work out. If you define working out broadly enough that it means ultimately I will get over it. And in fact, I will probably learn from it, get stronger and better, and still lead a perfectly happy life. So I've adopted a new micro-ideology. Instead of constantly walking around assuming that things are going to go horribly wrong, which has never happened, and even when it has happened, has ultimately, in the long run, still worked out. I'm now believing, well, things probably will work out. Even when they don't work out, they will ultimately still work out. It's sort of like, it sort of allows me to be less anxious, to, to worry less, to spend less energy fearing that I might make a misstep, because I now know that even if I do make a big mistake, that is also going to work out in the end. This micro-ideology has brought up some interesting thoughts in my life. 
One of them relates to an incident that occurred on the subway a few months ago. It's something that I posted on my blog, but I didn't actually record as a podcast. I'm going to read it to you now, and then we'll discuss it. Getting Discomfortable with Murder Monday morning, blistering heat. I was waiting for the subway when I heard a loud bang and saw a flash of light as the eastbound subway car entered the station behind me. Everyone froze. The train came to a stop, as usual, but the doors didn't open. It was eerily quiet and calm. We all looked at each other. Surely it wasn't what I think it was. The westbound train arrived moments later, and I stepped on, not sure what else to do. I just didn't want to believe it. Then the power went out, and police rushed onto the platform. People started running. As they evacuated us, I kept telling myself that there must be another explanation. I heard someone say they saw a shoe. Maybe someone threw a shoe at the train. Someone else said they smelled smoke. I tried to convince myself it was just a mechanical issue. I hurried to the next working subway stop. As I rode home, I listened closely to the crackling announcements until I heard that telltale phrase. Injury at track level. So it was a person. I did my best not to cry in front of everyone on the train. When I got home, it started pouring rain. I I tried to distract myself, but I couldn't shake it. I didn't know what to feel or what to do. I tried to numb it away. I binge-watched Netflix for hours. I scrolled through Twitter compulsively. The news was equally bleak kids being taken from their parents, a musician shot and killed, Space Force? At least it was a distraction. But much like the stifling humidity, I just couldn't escape the pain. There was no way to make it right, nothing I could fix, nothing I could do. I felt trapped. And then the news broke. It wasn't a suicide. Police believe the person was pushed pushed randomly right behind me. I retreated to my bedroom and cranked the AC. I lay on my bed and hugged my sheets. I longed for some human connection. Who could I reach out to? Who who could just appear in my bedroom and make it all better? I desperately wanted someone to cuddle me. And then my back started to feel warm. It got warmer and warmer and warmer. I finally turned around to look. The storm had cleared, and the setting sun was just beginning to peek below the top of my window frame. I noticed that the sunlight had quietly crept all the way across the floor of my room, up my bed frame, and along my mattress, until it was right there, spooning me from behind. I couldn't help but smile a little. Hey, buddy, I said. For some reason, the sun reminded me of a dog begging for attention. You want me to come outside? The sun nodded, it seemed. I got dressed and went outside. I took the sun for a stroll around the block. It was a terrible day, but in that moment, I realized we still have a lot more to feel than just pain. 
It was a profound experience for a number of reasons. First of all, it was horrifying. It was perhaps the most shocking thing that's ever happened in my line of sight. For those that don't know the story, this happened in Toronto. And using camera footage, they were able to determine that a man had just randomly pushed another man onto the tracks and then walked away. But then, 20 minutes later, he came back and was arrested by police. The victim was a 70-year-old man. Thinking about that not only made me realize, as often happens in these kind of situations, how fleeting and fragile life is, but it really tested the notion that everything works out in the end. How could I possibly argue that everything worked out in the end for that man who was pushed in front of the subway and killed instantly? In that sense, I don't think you can argue that it is, in fact, 100% true that everything works out in the end. In the end, my life could end in an instant in a horrible tragedy that I would certainly not consider working out. But when I believe that everything will work out given enough time, it improves my life nonetheless. It's got utility. So I'm kind of allowing myself to embrace a fiction. I don't know for sure if everything, absolutely everything, will work out. But believing it makes me more relaxed, less anxious. And when I am more relaxed and less anxious, things do seem to work out better, and I do seem to make less mistakes. It's like I'm using less bandwidth worrying, and that bandwidth makes me more attentive and, and, and more makes me smarter, basically. I noticed the same thing after my shame breakthrough. When I was living under a cloud of shame, I was constantly anxious that other people were judging me poorly. And I was basically trying to win everyone onto my side because I thought people, other people, literally determined my value. Their opinions were all that mattered. And when I realized that that wasn't true, that it was actually my own opinions that actually mattered, that anxiety lifted quite dramatically one day. I remember just sitting in my living room and realizing that no one else's opinions mattered but mine. And that anxiety kind of just left and everything I had worried about, my career and my life, it all just went away. And whereas I used to feel like there was never enough time in the day to do anything, to focus, to write, when that anxiety lifted, I had so much time on my hands. I could do so many things. It made me realize that the mental energy I was wasting on anxiety misguidedly, was actually the thing that was stopping me from achieving the things I wanted to achieve. And I feel like the same thing is true with my anxiety that things aren't going to work out. Maybe things aren't going to work out. But when I embrace the micro-ideology that things are going to work out, and, and, I, and I really do embrace it, like I, you really have to believe it, you can't fake it. Though I know I could get pushed in front of a train, I'm deciding to believe that everything works out, given enough time. And that releases me from constant anxiety that I'm going to make some kind of horrible mistake that will be irredeemable 
or will destroy my life in some way. And the truth is, we don't know what happens when you die. I'd like to believe, given all the stories of people walking towards a light or having their life flash before their eyes, that our brains have a very clever function of dealing with death. In those last moments, our brains maybe change the way we perceive time. Maybe our brains give us a flood of chemicals and endorphins that suddenly slow things down and give us a sense of peace. I don't know, a a sense of fulfillment, a sense that it actually all did work out in the end, even when we are dying in a way that we may not have wanted to. So it's possible that you could argue that given how you define working out, our experience will always be in the end that things have worked out as we finally pass away. It is possible to abuse this microideology I discovered. There's a thin line between everything works out in the end and everything happens for a reason. And this is a mistake that I made using this microideology. I actually found myself in a situation that I won't elaborate on too much because it's embarrassing. But basically, it was the kind of situation where my gut and my values and my integrity were all saying, no, AJ, you should not go along with this. But because I was really invested in this idea that everything works out, I was like, no, it's all going to work out. I should just do this. And not surprisingly, that particular situation was a disaster and did not work out and was a huge mistake that I very much regretted. But the irony was, it still did work out in the end, in that I learned some very valuable lessons about the fact that I was misusing the very ideology, everything works out in the end. The micro-ideology that everything works out given enough time is not an excuse to make bad decisions or no decisions at all. In fact, I think I absolutely still need to listen to my values and integrity and follow my gut. I I need to try to avoid mistakes. But when I do make a mistake, or when I am feeling anxious about something, that is the time to remember that everything is going to work out. It's not the same as everything happens for a reason. Everything happens for a reason presupposes that there's some kind of intelligence guiding the entire universe and that everything is part of their meticulous plan. I don't believe that, and I actually think that that kind of belief stops me from making critical decisions. Everything works out in the end is just a means of alleviating the kind of anxiety and worry that happens when I make a mistake or when I am thinking too much about a possible negative future. Instead of making worse decisions, it should be giving me the mental freedom and bandwidth to make better decisions. Another micro-ideology that's been improving my life recently was inspired by my experience doing ayahuasca. You can listen to an entire podcast episode about that, but... There was a moment when I was at this retreat surrounded by a bunch of strangers and hippies and people I didn't know, and I felt very uncomfortable. And I realized that I couldn't do ayahuasca feeling uncomfortable. 
I was really anxious about doing it because I felt very disconnected. I felt alone and uncertain if I was making the right decision. I needed to feel connection and approval in order to feel comfortable going through with it. And I basically realized that the only reason I felt disconnected from the people on this retreat is because I believed I was disconnected from them. I was being judgmental. I was holding myself separate from them and saying, no, I'm, I'm different than these people. I'm better than these people. And as soon as I let that judgment and that psychological barrier drop, I immediately felt connected to them, even retroactively. And I was able to go into the ayahuasca ceremony feeling really supported and validated and seen by these people who just an hour before I thought were total weirdos. It proved to me that a lot of the barriers to connection are in our own heads. We feel alienated and isolated because we believe that we are alienated and isolated and probably fueled by the fact that we are holding ourselves separate from people because we are judging them. We either feel that we are better or we feel that we are worse. After that experience, I was still traveling the world for a year and everywhere I went, when I started to feel that sense of isolation, I don't belong here, I would look around and say, no, these are my people. I, I remember vividly being in a food market in Mexico, surrounded by Mexicans, and I am not Mexican, and my Spanish isn't great, and I felt like I didn't belong. But as soon as I said, no, that's in your own head, these are my people. I've never met them before. They're from a different culture, but nonetheless, these are my people. And as soon as I reminded myself of that, as soon as I embraced that micro-ideology, I found that I was more engaged. I would actually make eye contact with people. I would smile at them, and they would look at me, and they would smile back, and it completely transformed the vibe of being in this market. It really did feel like I was connecting with people, like I belonged. It really did feel like they were my people. It's obviously a combination of my attitude and the way that my attitude affected my behavior, creating a sort of feedback loop. When I believed that I didn't belong, not only was I interpreting everything in that way, but I was acting in a way that reinforced that interpretation and, and actually probably negatively affected people's interest in looking at me and connecting with me. So now everywhere I go, no matter where I am in the world, I just tell myself, these are my people. And it works. People feel more open, more friendly. When I was in Prague last year, I remember standing on the subway and feeling like I didn't belong. I tried to make myself as small as possible. I didn't know how the doors opened. Like you had to like push a button, but I didn't know that. And people were waiting behind me. And I was like, oh no, I'm so sorry. Like I'm not from here. And it, I just felt really uncomfortable and awkward on the subway. And it was as if in every way, in my physical presence, in, in my behavior, I was trying to apologize for taking up space in a place where I thought I had no right to take up space. But then I realized I am a legal visitor in this country. I have paid for my Metro Pass. I'm a human and a citizen of the world, arguably. I have just as much right to be on the subway in Prague as anyone even someone who lives in Prague and has lived in Prague their entire life. The belief that I don't belong there is just that. It's a belief. It's an opinion. 
Someone could argue that even if they wanted, but the point is, it's totally subjective. And that's when I remembered the title to Miranda July's book of short stories, No One Belongs Here More Than You, which, it turns out, is also a Brene Brown quote. Who knew? As I was on that subway, I just kept telling myself, no one belongs here more than you. That became my mantra as I was traveling. That doesn't mean that I belong somewhere more than other people. It just means that we all belong. We all have the right to take up space in the world, even if we are in a new country or a new place or we don't know the rules or we're making a mistake. We still belong and we still have the right to exist, basically. And when I remind myself of that, I relax and I look around and I feel like I belong and I take a seat on the subway. And if I don't know how to open the door, I ask for help and I apologize if I waste everyone's time. But it allows me to be comfortable in my own skin, even in the most uncomfortable foreign settings. It allows me to be confident, even when I have no idea what's going on. It allows me to maintain my self-respect and say, I'm equal, I'm equal. Another thing I've been thinking about a lot lately, which isn't exactly a micro-ideology, when I'm in public, I often get really self-conscious. Because shame has been a big issue for me, it makes me hyper-aware of how people are perceiving me. It makes me think about, am I walking funny? Do I look cool? How is my outfit? Is my hair okay? Again, it's all this mental bandwidth that I'm expending on something that doesn't matter. It's natural for me or for anyone to worry what people think, but I'm trying to find ways to lessen that. So I'm just not doing it all the time. And one little thought that always helps me is to say, imagine that you're alone in your bedroom right now. Even though I'm often telling myself this as I'm walking down the street, so it doesn't really make any logical sense. But if I'm walking in a really kind of uptight, trying to look good in front of everyone way, I just say, AJ, imagine that you're in your bedroom right now. How would you walk if you had a hypothetical treadmill in your bedroom and you were all alone? And when I think about that, it allows me to kind of just tune everyone else out and just walk in my own AJ way as if I am alone in my bedroom. And I remember specifically standing on one street corner in Toronto and all of these micro-ideologies kind of came together. Even though I've lived in Toronto for many years, because I'd been traveling so much, I kind of suddenly felt like I didn't belong in Toronto either. And, and I had this moment on a street corner where I felt very self-conscious of how I looked, and was I dressed like a dirty traveler, and I, I didn't feel like I related to any of these Torontonians anymore. And then I just said to myself, no, not only are these my people, but I'm alone in my bedroom. And I looked around, and not only did everyone seem friendly and connected to me in my mind, but there was this casualness about it, as if they weren't just my people. They were my family. They, they were my best friends. They were people around whom I was so comfortable that it felt like I was just in my own bedroom. You know those people in your life, like often your family, though sometimes not, or your best friends, especially your partner, maybe your own children, where you just, you just get home, you know, you take your shirt off, you lie down, you burp, like you just don't even 
think about it because you just feel so accepted and connected to those people. That's how I felt in that moment on that street corner. It's not something that I've been able to achieve very often, but every now and then I will be able to take these micro ideologies. These are my people. No one belongs here more than me. I'm in my own bedroom and everything works out in the end and just completely relax around other humans and feel like I'm just so safe and so comfortable and so open. And I think that that is what people are feeling when they consider themselves spiritual. And it's just kind of an amazing feeling, and it's a little bit contagious. It spreads to the people who are in your immediate vicinity in terms of how you react to them, how you interact with them, how you look at them. And it seems to improve my life. 